you have a Bible, take it and turn to page one in your Bible. <laughs> Unless you have a study Bible, you may have to turn to page like five or something, depending on how many pages of introduction you have. Um, what, what page? Seven. Seven? Okay. Four. Four? Four? Uh, your study Bible doesn't want you to study as much, apparently. <laughs> For me, who I have a text Bible, it's page one. <laughs> Okay. Now, we're only going to look at verse 1. And you're like, well, what, what are you going to talk about all night? Well, I've got an introductory matter. We're starting a new book, so I've got to give you the who, what, when, where, and why of the book, right? And then we'll close on verse 1. But uh, everyone knows this verse. Verse 1, chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That will be our verse tonight. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're starting a new study tonight on the book of Genesis, of course, as uh, is pretty plainly obvious here. And uh, this is an important study because Genesis is an important book. Uh, Oftentimes, Christians, maybe not in reform circles, but Christians in other, out of other traditions, don't pay as much attention to the Old Testament as you would think they should. Um, you know, they're pretty good in the New Testament, they're pretty good in the Gospels and in Paul's letters, uh, because the Gospels tell us everything we need to know about Jesus, and, and Paul's letters and the rest of the New Testament epistles, they explain what the Gospels, uh, the, the story that the Gospels put forth. But Jesus doesn't just, like, come onto the scene in a vacuum, right? Jesus doesn't just parachute down out of heaven into a world without any context, right? And the context starts here in Genesis. Genesis is a book of beginnings. Genesis is a book of the record of generations. It's, it's a popular phrase that you see throughout the book. These are the generations. That's what we're calling our series here through Genesis. And it lays all of the foundation, not just for the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, not just for the Old Testament. It is a foundation that is laid for the entire scriptures, for the entire story of redemption. You have no, you don't really know why Jesus needs to come unless you have Genesis, right? Jesus came to solve a problem. But if you don't know what the problem is, then you don't know, you don't care about Jesus. If you don't know what the bad news is, The good news is not nearly as important to you. And we'll look at these foundational truths as we walk our way through Genesis. I have no idea how long this will take. Uh, It has 50 chapters. Uh, I probably won't go as granular as one verse for each time we meet. Uh, We'll probably take bigger chunks out of it. Um, But assume at least 50 weeks, okay? At least 50 lessons. Probably more. Um, I don't know. I didn't plan it out. But we'll be in it for some time. Um, But it'll be a good journey. So as we head into this book, the kind of overarching theme that I would like to get across is that Genesis is a book of beginnings that introduces the story of redemption. Genesis is a book of beginnings that introduces the story of redemption. Now, you have there on your outline at least four points, right? 
First one is the background to Genesis. So, now unlike some of the books that we've gone through in the New Testament, which is a little easier to kind of tell who wrote it, why they wrote it, what the reason was they wrote it, to whom they wrote it, Genesis is a little different because Genesis is not a letter. Genesis is not a gospel. Genesis is not uh, like an apocalypse or a prophecy. Genesis is sort of a theological history. Okay, it is a theological history. Now, traditionally, as to the well, if I were to ask the question, who wrote Genesis, how would you answer that? Okay, God. Okay, which human author wrote Genesis? <laughs> Moses. Okay. And that has been the tradition for most of Christianity and in Jewish tradition as well, that Moses is the author of Genesis, Moses is the author of the Pentateuch as a whole. And that, that's what we believe. Now, but as you would expect, uh, as with anything that has to do with the Bible, whenever, now, I, I don't say this as a knock on Germans, but usually this, this all of the trouble that we see with, with uh, trusting the Bible comes out of bad theology that comes out of Germany. All right, so all the good Germans must have left Germany to come here in Nebraska and left the bad Germans behind. But German critical scholarship has always sort of taken a critical stance to the Bible, kind of ignoring the fact that the Bible is inspired by God, ignoring the miracles uh, almost every theologian that, you, that it has a popular name that denies the authority and inspiration of Scripture has a German name. You can think of Rudolf Boltmann, you can think of Karl Barth, you can think of uh, uh, Schlesinger, all these guys. Now, in the 19th century, critical scholarship came up with a view that A, Moses didn't write the Bible, or sorry, didn't write Genesis or the Pentateuch, and that instead it was sort of a work that was collated and collected over hundreds of years by four different strains. Now, if you have a study Bible, they might talk about this. You might see the letters J-E-D-P there. Uh, and that's, that, those are the four traditions, the four uh, literary traditions that these critical scholars see running through the Pentateuch. So there's a J author, an E author, a D author, and a P author. You're like, well, who are they? Well, it's not John, Ed, David, and Paul, okay? <laughs> they stand for uh, t- types of writers. So the J stands for a word called Yahwist, J-A-W-H-I-S-T. It's, it's an author that is responsible for all of the references you see in the Old Testament, particularly in the Pentateuch, where God is referred to by his covenant name, Yahweh. So the Yahwist, J-A-W-H-I-S-T. The E stands for the Elohist. So wherever you see God, not his covenant name, uh, in Hebrew that word is Elohim. So wherever you see the phrase Elohim, that is the Elohist author, E-L-O-H-I-S-T, the Elohist author. The D stands for the Deuteronomist, and that person is mostly responsible for the book of, what would you think, if I just, as a, just take a guess, Deuteronomy, okay. <laughs> so you got the Yahwist, the Elohist, the Deuteronomist, and the last one is the priestly line. 
They would be the ones responsible mainly for like the book of Leviticus with all the sacrificial systems. So these critical scholars see these four different strains running through the Pentateuch and they say it had to have been sort of compiled over a long period of time with a lot of editors, a lot of redacting until finally it reaches its final form sometime around the time when King Josiah discovers the book of the law somewhere in the five or six hundreds uh, BC. So you've got these four traditions running through here. Now that, is, that carried a lot of weight from the 19th century into the 20th century until it was finally uh, eventually debunked even, not, not just by uh, Bible-believing scholars but by critical scholars as well. They, they didn't find the theory held weight. So we just go back to the age-old standard, Moses wrote it. Moses wrote it. So I believe Moses wrote it, and um, I have a lot of people to back me up on that. Not that we believe in argument from authority, but Moses wrote the Bible. I think the traditional answer is the correct one. The date. When was Genesis, when was the Pentateuch written? That depends on when the Exodus occurred. So again, in biblical scholarship, there are two dates that are commonly accepted for the Exodus. Now, by the Exodus, I don't mean the book of Exodus. I mean when the Israelites left Egypt, okay? There are two common dates for the Exodus. There is an, a, an early date and a late date. The early date is 1446 B.C. The late date is 1260 B.C. Now, this is not a... a this is not a debate between people who believe the Bible and people who don't believe the Bible. These are, this is, the date of writing is a debate between Bible-believing scholars because they look at the testimony of Scripture, the testimony of archaeology, the testimony of history, and they put these arguments together, and they, you've got one side that believes one date and another side that believes another date. So if you ask me, well, which date is correct, I can't tell you with 100% certainty which date is correct. But I can tell you which date I believe is correct, and it's the early date, the 1446 date. And you're like, well, how, what, what's your evidence for that? Well, my evidence, first and foremost, comes from Scripture. In 1 Kings, you can just write this reference down. You don't need to look it up. But 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, this is Solomon building the temple. And it says in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he, that is Solomon, began to build the house of the Lord. So you've got a couple of time markers there. You've got 480 years after the people left Egypt, the four, that is the fourth year of Solomon's reign. Now, we know with a very high degree of certainty when the fourth year of Solomon's reign was. And that fourth year of Solomon's reign is somewhere between 967 B.C. and 966 B.C. So if you subtract 480 years from that, you get around 1440 B.C., around that time for the Exodus. You have um, in the book of Judges, in Judges 11, verse 26, 
This is the judge, um, uh, what's his name? Jephthah, I think it was. I always remember him. He's the one who supposedly offered up his daughter for sacrifice. Uh, in Judges chapter 11, you won't believe in seminary, we had some people who were very strong Jephthah fans who say Jephthah did not offer his daughter up for sacrifice, and there were big debates about it in seminary, and that's, you know, that's why... Well, that's why you go to seminary, so you can engage in these useless debates. But anyway, in Judges chapter 11, verse 26, actually it starts in verse 12. I'm not going to read all of it. But Jephthah sends a, messen, uh, sends a message uh, to the king of the Ammonites. And it's a long message, but in verse 26, this is still Jephthah speaking to the king of the Ammonites. And he says, will you not... Possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you. To, no, sorry, that's the wrong verse. Verse 26. Here we go. While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aurora and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? Now, scholars date the message to 1100 BC. So Jephthah's message was sent around 1100 BC, and he says that the Israelites have lived in the land for 300 years. So you add 300 years, or subtract 300 years from 1100 B.C., you get around 1400 B.C. You also have the period of the judges. The period of the judges, just the entire time frame of the period of the judges. If you accept an early date of 1446, then the period of the judges would be about 350 years that spans from Judges 1 to the end of the book which seems to fit much more comfortably with what the events detail in the book of Judges. Um, if you were to sort of stack the Judges based on the time that they, you know, how long Israel was oppressed, how, you know, and then how long peace reigned after the Judge was done, if you stack those up, you get a little bit more than 350 years. And, and that's okay, you can explain that by saying, well, these Judges probably overlapped, okay, you know, while one judge was doing something up in the north, maybe another one was doing something in the south. So the period of the judges is about 350 years, and that fits in quite nicely with an early date. If you take the, the later date, the 1260 date, then the book of Judges has to be kind of sort of compacted into like about a 170-year period, and it just doesn't seem like that would fit very well. And you're like, well, what about the other date? Well, the other date... It's, I think its strongest argument is the, the argument that you see in uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 11. It talks about the cities that the Hebrews built while they were under enslavement. And it says in Exodus 1, 11, that uh, therefore they, uh, the kings of Egypt, set taskmasters over them, the Israelites, to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramesses. And archaeologists say that the city of Ramesses was built somewhere around 1270 BC. So if that's the case, then it would seem like that might mitigate for an early date. And then they have other arguments as well. Um, but I still think that the strongest arguments go for the early date, 1446. So that's the date. So you've got the author's Moses. When did he write it? Sometime around 1446 BC, along with the rest of the Pentateuch, now the occasion. 
So why did Moses compile the Pentateuch? Why did he write these first five books of the Bible? Did he write these first five books of the Bible so that we here, uh, what, 3,500 years later, can argue about the days of creation and how long, you know, if Noah's flood was a, a, a global flood, did he write those for, for us to conduct these arguments? What do you think? No. The situation is Moses is leading the people out of Egypt. Now, the people have been in Egypt for, I'm guessing, somewhere around 400 or maybe 450 years, maybe even more. They've been enslaved, right? If you remember, I think it's in Genesis 15 when God is giving the covenant to Abraham. I could look it up. I'm trying to do this off my memory. When God is giving the covenant to Abraham in Genesis 15, he says that your people will be um, enslaved in a foreign land for like 430 years, I think is the number. You can look me up. It's somewhere in the later part of Genesis 15. Well, so that's what happens, right? So you have Abraham, then you have Isaac, you have Jacob, then the 12 sons, and then they end up in Egypt, and then time passes. There's about a 400-year time gap from Genesis 50 to Exodus 1, and now the people have been enslaved. Now, 400 years, that's a long time. Right? If you think about it, 2000, we're, what, 2022? 400 years ago would be 1622. That's right around the time that the Puritans and the pilgrims are coming to the, the new world, right? 1620, right? You know, well, that's 1492, but I was thinking Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. But 1620 was when the Puritans came, when the pilgrims came, and they set up the Mayflower and, and Jamestown and all that stuff. That's a long time ago. You know, I mean... How many people here can, can trace their family history back 400 years? Okay, well, not many. <laughs> not many. That's a long time. That's a long time. So he writes this because they are about to, they've been rescued from Egypt. They are about to go into a land that they don't know of. None of them have set foot in the promised land. Yet this is the land that, that God promised to Abraham and his descendants, right? Way back in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Then he promised it to Isaac. Then he promised it to Jacob. Your descendants will be in this land. So they're coming to a land that they've never been to before. They're you know, they probably don't know much of their traditional history. Now maybe the names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have persisted for 400 years, but they probably don't know too much about them. So here, the occasion is the Israelites have been in Egypt for 400 years, and they are now going to Canaanite-controlled promised land. So they need to be told who they are and why they're going to Canaan. Who they are, they are descendants of Abraham. They are descendants of Isaac. They are descendants of Jacob. God made a covenant with Abraham. Isaac and Jacob to be their God and to be the God of their descendants. And he promised them the land of Canaan to be their possession. So now this, the, the whole Pentateuch, particularly the book of Genesis, is going to explain to these people who probably don't have much uh, knowledge of their family history who they are and why they're going to Canaan. Now the place in the Pentateuch. If you were to sort of look at the first five books as a whole and kind of come up with a theme statement for the Pentateuch, you could probably say that the, the theme statement of the Pentateuch is God's covenant through Moses with Israel. 
God makes a covenant with Moses, well, makes a covenant with Israel through Moses to be their God. They will be his people. He will dwell among them. He will give them the law. He will give them sacrifices in order to maintain purity so that God can dwell among them and all of these things. And, and that's what the Pentateuch kind of lays out. Right? It lays out first, you know, like again, Genesis gives them their history. Exodus tells them, you know, the story of Moses and how they came out of of Egypt, and then Leviticus gives them the laws, the, the sacrifices, numbers, journey, you know, just, uh, chronicles their journey from Sinai to the, to the plains of Moab right before they enter the promised land. And then Deuteronomy, sort of because you have a, a whole new generation, right? If you remember the story of the Exodus in Numbers, when they get up to the edge of the promised land in Numbers 13, they send the 12 spies in. Right? And they go to spy out the land. And what happens? What do, what do the 12 spies report? Well, 10 of them report, we can't take this land. All right? Yes, it is a land full, you know, it's beautiful, you know, the fruit, you know, the, the oranges are like this, you know, it's a wonderful. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But there are giants there, and we seem like grasshoppers to these guys. We cannot take this over. But uh, who are the two good spies? Do you remember the name? Joshua and Caleb, right. Which is why, like, every good Reformed boy is either named Joshua or Caleb. Right? Or a lot of them are. They say, no, 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 we can take the land. Why? Because God is with us. He is our God, and he will go before us, and he will, he will smite these giants. Well, the people listen to the ten rather than the two. Another reason why democracy is bad. <laughs> Again, remember what I said this morning, democracy is two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner. Um, anyway, bad joke. They listen to the tent, and they, don't, and they, and they decide to, to not go in, and then that incurs God's wrath, and he says, okay, fine, you're not going to go into the promised land, then, the, then that generation will die in the wilderness. You'll, you'll wander for 40 years, and that generation will die out, but your kids will inherit the land. So here they are, Deuteronomy, they're, at the, they're getting ready to enter into the promised land. And this is a whole new generation now. Because the older generation, except for Moses, because Aaron dies in the book of Numbers, Miriam dies in the book of Numbers, and that's it. You know, Caleb and Joshua, they're the only ones that are allowed to go in. And they're there, and now they need to be retold the law. They need to be, that's so Deuteronomy is a second law. That's what, literally what the name of the book means. Second law. So they're retold the law, they're retold the story right before they enter in. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a set of books that prepare Israel to live in covenant with God. It establishes Israel as a theocracy. So with God as the king. That's what a theocracy means. So Israel's a theocracy with God as the king. And the audience of Genesis, as well as the rest of the Pentateuch, is Israel in the wilderness. He is writing to Israel in the wilderness. And Genesis explains everything up to that point. And Genesis then orients one to the rest of the Pentateuch, as well as to the rest of the Bible. Now, just another word on, and maybe I'll speak to this later, another word on how you know, when I say Moses is the author, okay, it's, first of all, obviously the, the events of Genesis predate Moses, right? I mean, they predate Moses by a few hundred years at least, and then um, at least the, the later events, most of those events would be thousands of years before the life. So how did Moses know this? What do you think? 
What's that? Inspired by God, yeah. I mean, he, how does Luke open his gospel? Well, Luke opens, if you remember how Luke opens his gospel, he opens it by saying, you know, I write to you, Theophilus, to give you an account of everything that we've seen and heard. And he says, I went and I investigated, I looked at these things. Luke was inspired, even though he was not an eyewitness to the events, he was also, he was a traveling companion of Paul, so he would have known Paul's gospel. And it says that Luke interviewed people and wrote an orderly account of the life of Jesus. Moses could have done very much the same thing. He could have interviewed people who maybe who knew the legends, who knew the stories. He probably got a lot of it direct download from God when he was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law. Now, when I say that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, I don't mean necessarily that he wrote every single jot and tittle. All right, because there are... There are <laughs> I certainly don't think he wrote the part where, there in, I think it's in Deuteronomy, where it says, and Moses was the most humble man in the world, okay? <laughs> because if Moses wrote that, then he's not the most humble man in the world, all right? It, so Moses would have written, let's say, the bare, you know, like the, the foundational writings of it. it was, it's been more than likely collated and redacted. There are place names that you see in the Pentateuch and Genesis and the other books that it says, it'll say, uh, you know, the city they went to was called this, but it used to be called that. All right, that, that's not Moses writing that. That's an editor coming afterwards and saying, because if I, let's say the city of Sutton 300 years ago was called something else. Would we know what that is necessarily? No. So if someone said, well, they went to the city of whatever, and you're like, well, what's that? Well, that's Sutton. So, oh, yeah, I know where that's at. So you've got a lot of that going on in there. So you've, you probably have some editors working on this as well, um, modifying certain parts for a modern audience, so to speak. But Moses would have been responsible for the bulk of the material. I mean, Moses couldn't have wrote, written about the day he died, right? I mean, that's... <laughs> unless <laughs> I would make a reference to Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but it would just go over most people's heads. So anyway, I'll just say... You know, Moses would be writing, and then he died. And then, you know, and then he like, you know, just keels over at that point. Um, so there you go. So that's the background of Genesis. Structure and themes in Genesis. So Genesis can be broken down into two main sections. You've got what is often called the primeval history primeval history, that's P-R-I-M-E-V-A-L, so primeval history, that would be chapters 1 through 11, and that sets the stage for the story of Abraham. So what happens in chapters 1 through 11? Well, you've got the creation account. You've got God, uh, God placing Adam in the Garden of Eden. You've got God making Eve out of Adam's rib. You've got the, the fall. You've got Cain and Abel. You've got uh, the genealogies, you've got Noah and the flood, you've got the Tower of Babel. Those 11 chapters contain quite easily two, three, maybe, you know, who knows how many thousands of years are contained in those first 11 chapters. At least two and a half thousand years, at the very minimum, two or three thousand years, maybe more. So that, that section sets the stage. That's the primeval history. Then you've got the second main section, which we'll call the patriarchal history, 
Why is it called the patriarchal history? Because it traces the family line of Abraham, from Abraham to his son Isaac, from Isaac to his son Jacob, and from Jacob to his 12 sons. You say, who are the 12 sons of Jacob? Okay, let's see if I can get them. I, I missed them the last time I had to do this. You got Reuben, you got Levi, you got Simeon, you got Judah, you've got Gad, you've got Asher, you got Naphtali, Zebulun, you've got um, Joseph and Benjamin, you've got Ishtar, and I said him. Dan. Okay, got it. There we go. Dan. So those not in order. Reuben, Reuben was at first. So you got his 12 sons. So it traces the line from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to his 12 sons. And that, that's from chapters 12 all the way to the end of the book. And that's the main drama of the book. That is the main heart of the story. So then Genesis is a book of beginnings, the primeval history, and a book of generations, the, the patriarchal history. It traces the family line of Adam, the first man, to Jacob, and it forms the backbone of the narrative. Now, you probably don't see it too much in the New King James. You see it in the ESV and other translations. There's a phrase that is repeated throughout the book of Genesis. And it's, in, in Hebrew, it's the, the word is toledot, toledot. And in English, you would translate it, these are the generations, these are the generations. And it's a phrase that you see in chapter 2, verse 4, where I'm reading out of the ESV tonight. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. These are the generations. Toledot. You see it again in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man. You see it again in chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Now the, ES, the King James, New King James is probably saying something different. Does it say the genealogies or the history perhaps or, or something along those lines? What does it say in verse, chapter 6, verse 9 in the New King James? The genealogies? Okay, that's not a bad translation. Chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem, when Shem was 100 years old. You get a genealogy there. Chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Uh, you have chapter 25, so now you get a big chunk. Chapter 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Toledot. And again in verse 25 of chapter 25. Uh, whoops. Do I have that verse right? No, sorry, 25, verse 19. My bad. Uh, these are the generations of Isaac. I got that one. Uh, no, 25 verse 12. That's the one I missed. Sorry. These are the generations of Ishmael. 
So right there in 25, you see the, you know, a, a Toledot section for both of Abraham's major sons, Ishmael, which is a small section, and then Isaac, which really then goes on and tells the story of, of Isaac. Uh, then again in chapter 36, verse 1, you get, so it's another longer section, and in chapter 36, verse 1, you're going to get, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. And then 36, verse 9, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, so it's the same thing. And then finally, um, chapter 37, verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. So these, that phrase forms an outline of the book of Genesis. So you've got five of them in the primeval uh, history section, and you've got five of them in the patriarchal history section. And that phrase, these are the generations, it, was, it would be like this. It would be like as if you were watching a drama or something unfold, and each time you, you hear the phrase in, the, in Genesis, these are the generations, it would be as if this... You know, the, the screen went black, and then a new story begins. All right, that's kind of how the drama is being driven through the book of Genesis. These are the generations. So once you're done with Abraham, then it'll be these are the generations of Isaac. Let's look at Isaac now. These are the generations of Esau. These are the generations of Jacob. It's moving the story along, and it's, and it's, it's moving us along as well with it to follow these, these, um, these, these patriarchs through the book of Genesis. So these, these Toledotes, they form a natural outline for the book. You'll also see a number of genealogies in the book. I'm not going to go through all of them. We'll go through them when we hit them. But there's a major one in chapter 5. There's a major one in chapter 10, or 11, sorry. Uh, and, and those are long lists of names. So you'll, like in chapter 5, well, what happens in the previous chapters? Well, I mentioned that before. You've got creation. You've got Adam and Eve in the garden. You've got the fall. You've got Cain and Abel. And then you have, at the end of chapter 4, the birth of Seth. So Seth is the replacement for, for Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain. And then it says these are the generations of Adam. And then it, and then it just goes, boom, 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 boom. You know, in, in chapter 5, it just goes, you, know, you hit like, I don't know how many generations, in, maybe 10 or so in chapter 5, and all of a sudden you hit Noah. So it's almost as if, you know, the, the story is going along, and then you hit chapter 5, and then it just speeds up. And you kind of like fast forward, you know, how many years? You know, hundreds of years, perhaps. Thousands of years, maybe. Up until you hit the time of Noah. And then it slows down again. And then you hear the story of Noah. And then his three sons. And then all of a sudden, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. And then you get another genealogy, and it's just like, you know, you're just like fast forwarded again in time until you hit the time of Abram. So these, gener these genealogies are there to sort of move the narrative along, but they're also there to show the connection. It's a very important connection. Um, we, we've just finished our Advent series, and in the very first one, we looked at the promise of Messiah, and in Genesis 3.15, when we get to that, we'll talk that a little more in detail, but that's the, 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 what they call the mother promise, the, the proto Evangel, the, the first mention of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, where as, as God is cursing the serpent and Adam and, and Eve for their failure in the garden, he brings this promise and he says to the woman, he says, says, your seed, the seed of the woman will crush 
the head of the serpent, but the serpent will, will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And Genesis, those, gene, those genealogies in Genesis trace that seed of the woman line. It's, it's like a scarlet thread moving its way through the pages of Genesis to show you from Adam to Seth, a bunch of other names. Then you hit Noah, Noah who is a, who is a man of righteousness, a man who found favor with God and was, and was counted righteous before God, and he, God saved him. And then that line follows Noah to his son, he has three sons. It, goes, it, it starts off with Shem, and, and then you hear a bunch of names until finally it rests upon Abram. It's tracing that line, that seed of the woman, from Adam to Seth to Noah to uh, Abram and then to his sons. It's, it go, that line goes to Isaac, not to Ishmael. That line goes to Jacob, not to Esau. This, this line is being... Uh, uh, drawn and this godly line is being followed and traced throughout the book of Genesis. And it's very important, not just for the recipients of the story on the banks of the river Moab as they're about to cross into the promised land. It's important for us too. Why is it important for us? Well, because by faith we are children of Abraham. That's what Romans 4 says. We are children of Abraham by faith. We are adopted into the family of Abraham. So this history is not just history for the Jews. It's our history too. This is our history as well. And this is a history of the church as well. So now some major themes that you see in Genesis. The main theme of Genesis is creation, corruption, recreation. Or creation, sin, recreation. You've got the original creation... It is a good creation. God creates Adam, puts him in paradise, gives him a wife. And what does he say to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. Create a godly race of people. They will be my people. I will be your God. And we will dwell in paradise. Except, or but, dun, 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 right? You know, that's when the serpent comes into the garden and Adam fails in his task. So you've got this, you've got creation and you've got sin. Sin ruins God's good creation. And then from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation <laughs> chapter 20, which is over here somewhere, <laughs> okay. going from left to right, Revelation chapter 20, that's all recreation. That's all the story of redemption. So you've got, really, the Bible is a bookend. You've got, you've got creation on one end, you've got new creation on the other end, and in the middle, the story or the drama of redemption. How do we get from creation to new creation? You need Genesis 3 through Revelation 20. That tells you the story or the drama of redemption. Sub-themes. What are some of the sub-themes we'll see in Genesis? I've got six. You can probably draw up more if you want. So these are themes that are under this main theme of creation, sin, recreation. One of them is covenant. You're going to, we're going to talk a lot about covenant. Okay? Uh, we're going to talk about a covenant of works that God establishes with Adam in the garden. 
We're going to talk about a covenant that God makes with Abraham. It's a covenant that he's going to reiterate with his sons, Isaac and Jacob. We're going to talk, I forgot one, we're going to talk about a covenant that God makes with Noah. So covenant is a sub-theme. You've got human depravity is another one. Because what happens after the fall? You get to Genesis 6, and you hear in the very first opening phrases, verses of chapter 6, and God looked upon the earth, and all the thoughts of men were always or continually evil all the time, something like that. You know, you've got like three you know, superlatives, always evil all the time. So what does God do? Well, he judges them, right? He judges them with a flood. So you've got human depravity. I mean, right off the bat, right out of the garden, what is the first thing that happens in Genesis 4? You've got a crime of passion, right, when Cain kills his brother Abel. Why? Because God liked his sacrifice better than his own. It's like, and then God says, why is your face fallen? Why are you sad? Why are you angry, Cain? You're, you're my child, too. And Cain's like, no, no, no. He says, look, you better watch out. Sin's crouching at the door, right? Sin's waiting to, to take a hold of you. That's exactly what happens to Cain. He gives in to his depravity. You see, the tracing of the family of Abraham, that's another big theme. I've talked about that. The family of Abraham is very important in this book. It's important for the Jews sitting there waiting to go into the promised land because that's their history. It's important for the church too. Curse as a punishment for sin. Right? Adam fails in the garden, punishment for sin. He's cursed. Eve is cursed. Adam is cursed. The serpent is cursed. Genesis 6, the whole world is full of sin. God brings a curse, the flood. God punishes sin. So you got that here too. But you have gospel grace. As I mentioned before, in the process of cursing the serpent, God gives the promise of the gospel right there in Genesis 3.15. God brings the gospel to Abraham and says, through you, the nations of the world will be blessed. God tells Abraham in Genesis 15, he says, look, if you, you know, because of your faith in me, it will be counted to you as righteousness. You have been sort of counted righteous because of your faith in me. That is the gospel right there. You get, let's see, is that covenant, gospel, grace, family? One more. Paradise lost in the plan of redemption to restore paradise. That's a theme that you'll see throughout here as well. So that takes care of section two. Let's look at an overview of Genesis. Overview of Genesis. So first part there, Genesis and salvation. So the story of Genesis centers on a family, as I've been saying. It centers on a family beginning in Genesis 3.15, and then from Seth to Noah in chapter 6, verse 9, and then to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3. So this story of salvation is traced through that godly line of Seth to Noah to Abraham. You also see a connection here that salvation comes in a way through the firstborn. But the firstborn, here's the thing that's funny in Genesis, is that firstborn doesn't mean born first. Okay? The, first, the blessing of the firstborn does not mean it goes to the person who was born first. Okay, who was born first, Ishmael or Isaac? 
Ishmael, did, did the promise go through him? No. Who was born first, Esau or Jacob? Now, this is a trick question because they were twins. Who came out first? Esau did, right? <laughs> he had Jacob grasping his heel. Trying to, he was trying to get out first, but, but Esau beat him to it. Did the blessing go through Esau? No. How did Jacob get the blessing? Through trickery, okay? But he got the blessing anyway, okay? God, you know, we intend evil. God means it for good. So the firstborn doesn't always mean born first. But this, this idea of salvation through the firstborn will be traced all the way to Jesus Christ, who is God's, in a sense, firstborn son, his only begotten son. And Genesis, like the rest of the Old Testament, points to, and of course anticipates, Jesus Christ. Yet, just from the book of Genesis by itself, we cannot develop a full, fleshed-out doctrine of Christ. Okay, We, we don't know that, that Jesus will be God and man in human form, we don't know yet that Jesus will go to the cross and die for our sins. We don't know any of that. But Jesus is all throughout the pages of Genesis. I could tell you that for sure. Again, you know, the very first verse in the beginning, God, that's what John the Apostle writes as the very first word to his gospel. In the beginning was the word. So Jesus was there at the beginning. Jesus is the one through whom God created. Right? What did God do when he created? How did he create? He spoke. What's the word of God? Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the vehicle through which God creates. So all of this points to and anticipates Jesus, yet we cannot form a full doctrine of Christ from Genesis alone. But of course, he is the one who will bring the salvation that is promised in Genesis 3.15 as it follows through the godly line. In addition to the promise that through Abraham blessings will come to the nations is the promise to Abraham that he will become himself a great nation. He will have land. God promises land to him. God promises descendants to him. And this concept then of a nation is to fulfill the original purpose of God to dwell among his people. Again, I, what did I say earlier? When, when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them a mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And the, the original goal was to have the world filled with people who bore the image of God. And God would be their God and they would be his people. That plan failed. Not that God's plans failed, but that failed. That, that, would, that did not occur. So through Abraham, he says, I will start a new people, a new nation, through the descendants of Abraham. They will be a holy nation, that's what we see in Exodus 19.6. Israel, as they are at the foot of Sinai, God says to them, you are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. And that's, that is something that is echoed by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.9, where Peter says that we, the church, are a holy nation, a, a holy nation of priests. Though instead of through an ethnic, theocratic nation, this promise is fulfilled in an international royal priesthood, one that goes out to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And again, all of this is to restore what was lost in Genesis 3. So paradise, uh, paradise which was granted in Genesis in the first couple of chapters, and it was lost, that paradise is where God will be our God and we will be his people forever. That will be restored. We saw that at the end of Genesis, uh, Revelation 
right? In Revelation, God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will wipe every tear from your eye in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. So that's Genesis and salvation. Genesis and history. I'm going to start trying to move a little more rapidly now. So there's a lot that could be said about this. But the question that always comes up, particularly from skeptics, is the question, is Genesis history? Is Genesis history? Particularly if you look at the first 11 chapters. All right, when you look at the first 11 chapters, those are the chapters that the skeptics attack the most. Why? Because you can't really attack the story of Abraham, right? You have three major religions that trace their roots back to Abraham. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all trace their roots back to Abraham. So you can't really deny the existence of Abraham. You can't deny the existence of Isaac and Jacob. Obviously, you can't deny the existence of Israelites in general. But you can, you can poke holes, at least, that's what the skeptics say, in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Why? Because, well, you read the stories there, it almost sounds mythical, right? You've got the Tower of Babel and, 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 the, you know, and what happens at the end of the Tower of Babel. And, you know, the, the, the moral of the story is, is sort of like, and that's where all the languages came from. You know, you can almost hear like a mythical uh, idea behind it or... You know, Genesis, you know, Genesis 6 and the flood, and that's where all the fossils came from. You know, you, you can almost hear the skeptics, you know, poking holes through all of this. So is Genesis history? Well, what is history? I guess that's a question, right? If you want to find out if Genesis is history, what is history? History, at least I would say, is an account of events that the author believes actually occurred. So whoever's writing the history... He, is, he or she is writing that down because he or she believes that these events occurred. And he or she is recording these events as having occurred. And when you read Genesis, it reads like that. It doesn't read as much like a fantastical story of myths. Because when we get to it, in the, the creation account basically says this. In the beginning, God spoke the world into existence. That's in a nutshell, the creation story. Well, you look at some of the other creation myths, and what, what do you get? Well, you, you look at, like, the, the, the Sumerian myths, you know, where the Gilgamesh epics come from. Well, you know, they'll say, well, the world was created when the god Marmaduke fought the great dragon Tiamat, and then their battle produced a, you know, that created the world, and then, you know, so on and so forth. And it's like, so usually the stories of other myths are, you know, the creation of the world comes out of like the battle of great forces of good versus evil or good gods versus bad gods or, you know, uh, maybe a, a, a lesser god sort of exerting his will over some primordial matter or something like that. So you hear those stories and then you hear Genesis basically says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God spoke and the universe leapt into existence. So you either have these fantastical myths, you've got the Bible story, or you've got what modern-day science tells you, and we'll get to that in a moment, but what modern-day science tells you is like, well, in the beginning there was a singularity, 
And then that singularity just one day decided to explode. And then out of that, you know, boom, you have the entire universe in a millisecond. And then, you know, things start to swirl. And then you've got a planet that has the right density and the, the right kind of primordial soup. And out come the, the little amoeba things with the legs. And they split the legs. And then they, you know, it's like, okay, what takes more faith to believe? That all of the order in the universe, all of the, 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 the wonder and, and, and um, originality and, and uh, diversity you see in the universe, that it, that it was created by God or that it just happened on a Tuesday when nothing was going on that day. I think it takes more faith to believe the latter than the former. So is Genesis history? Yes, I think Genesis is history. It is, it is written as history, and I think we need to read it as history and try to avoid the modern biases. Because the modern biases will say, well, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like the way we write histories. Well, okay. It doesn't sound like the way we write histories today in the 20th or the 21st century. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. But it's... It's because it's not a history like we would write a history. It's not, you know, we write a history of the American Revolution and we're going to give you names, we're going to give you dates, we're going to tell you such and such happened. That's not what this is about. This is not a history book. It talks about historical events that really happened, but it is not written as a history book. It is a book that is telling a group of people ready to enter a land who they are and why they're going into that land. It is not written as a history book. Neither is Genesis written as a science book. Now, Genesis does give us a true account of the creation of the material universe. Absolutely. How did the material universe come into being? God spoke, and it leapt into existence. Does this give us an account in a way that will solve or answer or conform to modern-day uh, purposes of science? No. Why? Because the Bible is not a science book. The Bible is not meant to give you the exact composition of what the world looked like at the time when God created it. All right? It's not meant to give you, when, when the Bible talks about, particularly in Genesis 6 and the animals that come to Noah's Ark, it says they had you know, different kinds of animals. And then the, the scientists will say, well, yeah, but there's like 30,000 million billion species on the earth, and they all couldn't fit on the ark. It's like, Okay, well, you're, first of all, you're assuming that when the Bible says kinds, that it means species as identified in the 21st century. Not to mention how many species have come into existence and then gone extinct in that period of time, right? I mean, untold thousands. So it's not a science book. The Bible is not a modern-day science book. It's not a modern-day history book. So we should not use those standards to judge the Bible. And... Really, where the Bible runs into the biggest conflict with science, can you guess where that's going to be? Just throw a guess out there. Where do you think, where do you think the biggest conflict with the Bible and modern science is going to, is going to hit? The, the, yeah, the days of creation, right? Now, I believe, the RCUS believes that Creation was in six normal 24-hour days. Now, there's other views. Um, there are other views on that. There's, there's what they call the um, framework theory, which is a, that says that the six days provide a literary framework for creation. 
that the days are not meant to be taken literally. Uh, you've got the day-age theory that says that the days are not 24 hours, but they speak of vast ages that, that take you know, a long, long, long time. You've got the gap theory, which says that between Genesis 1-1 and 1 verse 2 is a gap. Now you're like, well, yeah, of course there's a gap because there's a space between the word earth and the word the. Yeah, there's a gap. Well, no, but the, what the, you know what they do in that gap? They squeeze billions of years in, in that gap. And they do so because what they say was when in verse 2 where it says the earth was without form and void. They say that in that gap, you had the satanic rebellion and where the angels fell and there was a great battle and then God sort of he sort of like wiped out creation and restarted, which is why the earth is without form and void. He's got to like reform it. So you got the gap theory. So you got all these theories. Now what does modern day science tell us? How old is the universe these days? I don't know how old it is. I can tell you what it was last time I heard a number. If you watch the, if you watch the TV show Big Bang Theory, the little ditty at the beginning of this, the show will say 14 billion years ago, so on and so forth, right? So 14 billion years. All right, that seems to be the most common uh, number thrown around these days. So we're going to have a disconnect, right? Because if we believe that the days of creation are 24-hour days, then the earth is no more, right, no, sorry, no less than 6,000 years old, right? Because if you, if you start in Genesis 1-1 with seven days, you got a week, and then if you take the genealogies and connect them, father to son, father to son, years, you add up all the years. And someone did this in the 17th century, 18th century. There was a guy named Usher. He was a, I believe he was a, a, an English archbishop, Usher. And he did that, and he, he calculated the time and said that creation happened. He actually gave you a month and a day which is kind of interesting, but he said it happened in 4004 B.C. So that's the, that's the absolute minimum amount of time, 6,000 years. You could probably stretch that out to tens of thousands of years if you allow for gaps in the genealogies. Um, I think that there are gaps in the genealogies. Why do I think that? Well, uh, this morning we read through Matthew chapter 1, and... It talks about the genealogy of Jesus. Interesting, it uses this, and these are the generations of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And it, if you notice, there's three sections in the genealogy, and each one has 14 generations. Matthew is doing that specifically for sort of a, a symmetry, right? There are, there are names that are skipped in there. There are generations that are skipped in there. There's also the belief that when it says that so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, Hebrew allows for this. It doesn't necessarily mean the father as in, that's my son. It could be father as in ancestor. So so-and-so was the ancestor of so-and-so. I say that to, to point out that you've got 6,000 years. It's like a bear, you know, drop dead. That is the absolute, you know, minimum number of years. It could, it could stretch out to tens of thousands if you allow for gaps. Point of why I say this. Why are you saying all this? Well, the point is because it's not 13 billion years ago. Okay? It is not 14 billion years ago. It is at best 10, 20, 30,000 years. So we'll, we'll come into those 
uh, issues as well. But again, remember, the Bible is not a science book. The Bible wasn't written to answer these questions. <laughs> it was simply just not written. Moses, again, wasn't writing this. Okay, I know that people are going to have, you know, 5,000 years from now, people are going to have a debate on the age of the universe, and they're going to think it's billions of years. I better write this in such a way to show that it's only six to 10,000. No, he wasn't writing it for that purpose. He was writing to a group of people who didn't know what their history was to tell them who they were and why they were going into the promised land. So we need to avoid bringing these questions, asking questions of the Bible that the Bible just is not designed to answer. It is not meant to answer these questions. But when the Bible does speak on these issues, it speaks truthfully. And we can take it to the bank. So Genesis and us. Thus, we must be sensitive that Genesis was written thousands of years ago. All right, if it was written in 1446-ish uh, B.C., that is, what, 3,400-plus years ago? That's a long time ago. So it was written a long time ago, and it records events, the book of Genesis does, that happened long before that, right? That's just the writing of Genesis. It records events that happened... I mean, the, the time of Abraham is dated somewhere around 2500 B.C. So you're writing events that are over a thousand years from the time of Moses. So we need to be mindful of the time gap. We need to be mindful of the culture gap. We're going to read through these stories, and you've probably read through them many, many times as you've read through the Bible, and, and there are going to be things that shock us that was normal for them. Right? It was just, for them, it was normal. For us, it would be like, how dare, you know, how could you do that? You know, it's like, that's, that's, that was the culture back then. There's a language gap. Guess what? Ancient Hebrew is not the same as English. <laughs> In case you were wondering that question, it is not the same. So you've got a time gap, you've got a culture gap, you've got a language gap. Thus, as I said before, we have to avoid asking questions that Genesis never intended to answer. And I think we receive Genesis well when we try to receive Genesis as the original audience would have received Genesis, a story of creation, a story of sin, and a story of recreation. All right. That's the introduction. Genesis 1.1. So I'll read the verse again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in that very first statement, it makes four bold statements with very little fanfare. First, you have in the beginning, that's when. You've got God, that's who. You've got created, that's how. You've got what, the heavens and the earth. So you've already got the, you know, four of the major questions that every reporter should ask. Who, when, what, how. The only one you don't have is why. <laughs> Why did God do all of this? Catechism question. Come on now. Why did God do all of this? For his glory. Thank you. So in the beginning means that before creation, there was only God. And how does God exist? Well, God exists as a triune being. Now, we're not going to see that boldly in the Old Testament, but you'll see hints of it in the Old Testament. God exists in a perfect communion with the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
perfect communion, perfect union of love, and, and, and uh, just a, a perfect communion between the persons of the Trinity. God did not create because he was lonely. God did not create because he was bored. God did not create because he had nothing better to do. God created because he wanted to display his glory. He had a decree. He had an eternal decree. And the creation is an expression of his decree. It is how God carries out his decree. God has an eternal decree, which tells us that everything that happens, happens according to the sovereign, free will of God. How does God carry out his decree? Well, first he carries it out by creating things. And then he, and then he carries out his decree by providence, governing the things that he's created. So God creates everything, and then God governs it with his providence. But in the beginning, before creation, there was only God. There was nothing else. There was no stuff that was there. The stuff of the universe is not eternal. That's what the Greek philosophers thought. Plato, Aristotle, all those guys. They thought that the stuff, the matter of the universe was eternal. It always existed. It took on different forms every so often, but the matter was there. It was, it was indestructible. It was always existent. The Bible says no. In the beginning was God and God alone. And of course, the word God speaks of who created. He mentioned this already. This is the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Created speaks to that God used no pre-existing material. He spoke and things happened. He spoke and things leapt into existence. There was, this was not the result of some cosmic battles I mentioned between in the heavens between good deities and bad deities. God created, in a, there's a fancy Latin phrase called ex nihilo, from nothing, out of nothing. God did not have any pre-existing matter. He didn't say, okay, let's shape this, let's take this formless lump of clay and make a world. Okay, no, he created the clay, right? He created the dirt, he created the rocks. And the heavens and the earth, just, there's a fancy phrase for it, I forget the name of it, it's like a, it's a, it's a phrase that means that you've got the two extremes and it includes everything in the middle. So when it says here that God created the heavens and the earth, it means that he created everything. All right, everything. The heavens, the earth, the spiritual realm, the material realm, the sky above, the earth below, the seas, and all that contains in it. He created everything. And we'll learn later that all of it was created, in a sense, like I said, through Christ himself. Uh, a great passage on this is Colossians. Uh, 1, 15 and on, where Paul says that he, Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. So Christ himself is the perfect image of God. He is the firstborn. Remember I said salvation comes through the firstborn. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. And then verse 16, for by him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Jesus Christ is the instrument of creation. He is the word that God speaks 
that creates everything, and all things are maintained in him as well. So everything was created by God. So creation, as I said, is not eternal. The, the, the universe is not eternal. And, and even scientists believe that, which is why the prevailing theory for the, the origin of the universe is not sort of everything has been there forever. It's the Big Bang, right? So before the Big Bang was just the singularity, all of a sudden, poof, you know, then it explodes into existence. So even, even secular scientists recognize, well, what, you know, when you say you have a singularity that explodes, you, you're, 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 you're speaking of a beginning. The universe has a beginning. So they, they actually acknowledge that. They just don't acknowledge the God who created it all. So God, the universe is not eternal. The universe is also not equated with God. That's, an, that's, that's a philosophy called pantheism. That is, everything is God, okay? And, and so, in other words, the universe is sort of like a, a part of God. God had to sort of create the universe by emanating it out from his, his being. No, we don't believe in an eternal universe. We don't believe that God is equated with his universe. We believe that God is distinct and separate from his creation. Why? Because before creation, there was nothing but God only. And then God spoke it into existence, Creation is a free act of God's will, which along with God's providence is how God executes his eternal decree. So just some words in conclusion here. So as we embark on our journey through Genesis, this is a book of beginnings that will orient the reader to the drama of redemption. It is a saga of creation Corruption, Christ, then consummation. You're like, well, that's clever. I didn't come up with that. <laughs> that comes from the answers in Genesis. That's their four C's. If you follow answer in Gen- answers in Genesis, they talk about the four C's. Creation, corruption, Christ, and consummation. So kudos to them. I'll give them credit for that. But that's what the Bible is. And Genesis grounds that. Genesis gives the foundation for that. And as I said earlier, it's, a, it's, it's bookended. You've got creation on one end. You've got new creation on the other end. You've got the drama of redemption in the middle. And Christ is all through that. Christ is the one who, through whom the universe was created. Christ is the one to whom the universe will end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And Christ is the one who brings redemption in the middle. So you've got Christ all throughout the Bible. So we'll stop here. Next time... And we will, my plan is to look really at the seven days of creation. So from Genesis 1-2 to Genesis 2-3. That will be what we look at.